0: morning to the book of Judges. We've just finished up, if this is your first week here, uh, we've just finished up a a long series looking at the most uh, well-known sermon in all of human history, the Sermon on the Mount. And we have invested uh, a great deal of time in our small groups and uh, as a church looking at those three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And for the next five weeks we're going to dedicate our time by going to the Old Testament and looking at a biography of a of a pretty amazing guy. Amazing could be used both in the good sense and the bad. He, he's an amazing guy. And uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Samson. And as we look at the life of Samson over these next five Sundays in the month of June, we're going to devote ourselves to looking at what is one of the most enigmatic characters of all of Scripture. He is the flawed fighter himself, he is the man Samson. Now, you can find his life in his biography. It's contained in Judges uh, chapter 13 through 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask you to grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 213. Page 213. Now. As we look at the life of Samson, whether you are, have been a follower of Jesus Christ and a follower of the Bible for a long time or you're brand new uh, to uh, the ways of Christianity and to church maybe altogether, uh, there is very little doubt that I have that you haven't heard of the name Samson. If you haven't, then you'd know his girlfriend Delilah. And this is who we're talking about, Samson, this great man uh, of strength, this great man whose exploits are known to the believer and non-believer alike. And as we explore these chapters in the book of Judges, you're going to come to find out that this storyline could come right out of Hollywood's biggest blockbuster movie. I mean, as we go through these next five weeks, you're going to hear of a script, a, a storyline that's filled with blood and gore, war and love, seduction and betrayal, and at the ending, uh, an ending that the viewer, if you would, would be on the edge of their seats. And yet, with all that said, the story of Samson is one that is of great tragedy, one life that begins so brightly. In fact, the name Samson literally means shining sun. One that would be filled with so much hope, so much raw potential. And yet Samson will show us amidst such a glowing start, because of failure after failure, it would lead to more heartache and trouble than anyone should ever have to endure. And yet that's exactly what Samson is going to endure, because he is given incredible superhuman strength like those of the superheroes on our uh, movie screens. And yet this man of such great strength would be a man who would be characterized by some of his greatest weaknesses. He is the proverbial weak, strong man. History has addressed this combination of strength and weakness. In fact, many have said that Samson is the antitype or the exact opposite of the great man Moses. Michelangelo chose Moses as one of his chief sculptures, and yet John Milton would use Samson as the subject of his greatest tragedy. Samuel Zwemer helps us see the contrast, and what I would say is probably the longest quote that I will ever share with you, but I love it so much, as he contrasts the life of Moses in the life of Samson, seeing the differences of these two men. Notice on the screen what what he says. He says, Moses and Samson. What a contrast in their strength, vocation, talent, character, destiny, and influence on life and literature. Some would say that they had nothing in common, although both had godly parents and were consecrated in infancy. And they do present a marked contrast. For one was the man of brains, who learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. The other was the man of brawn, up to all the tricks and sports of a giant. Moses' life is one of a long epic, while Samson's is a brief tragedy. Moses was the man of God. In Apollo, the other was Hercules, while Moses was the legislator. The Redeemer, the leader of his people, his rod wrought miracles by the hand of God, and his pen wrote the laws of Israel for all ages. And yet Samson appears suddenly as a grotesque figure, a solitary individual, always waging his conflict against the Philistines, alone and generally actuated by personal motives of caprice or humor. Samson died with a prayer for vengeance on his lips. Moses, on the other hand, with a prophecy for Israel. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, while Samson gave us riddles. Moses lived 120 years, founded a nation, and his laws remained their legacy for 30 centuries. Yet Samson's brief cure ended in a local catastrophe without permanent success or memorial. The Nazarite of Dan, speaking of Samson, was known by his exploits only to save Israel from the Philistines. Moses the Levite was the greatest prophet of Israel and their supreme lawgiver. Moses was faithful in all his house, while Samson betrayed his trust and lost his power. So different are these two characters. But listen to what Samuel says here. Yet one thing they had in common, the same faith, but not the same faithfulness. Let's just stop there for a moment. Because we can look and we can say, well, Moses had something more. God gave him something more that God offered him than he did to Samson. And that's why Moses was such a marked contrast. And many of us will say, if I only had The strength of Samson, if I only had the leadership abilities of Moses, if God would just give me those gifts, then I might be able to serve him. Notice, just like Moses, and just like Samson, and just like David, on through the New Testament and on to us today, we have all been given the same faith. The question this morning is, are we pursuing the same faithfulness? And so as we look at this life of Samson this morning, we need to understand that Samson is, as I put in my title this morning, a man of his times. Now what does that mean? I, I read a lot of biographies, and, <clears throat> and, and a lot of biographers will speak of a man in human history, especially a great man, of a man of his times. I'm reading right now a biography that my wife gave me on Thomas Jefferson. And John Meacham, who wrote the, uh, the biography, says in the opening passage that Jefferson was an incredible man, one of the greatest men to ever live in all of human history. He was a man for his times and of his times. And I had to pause and say, what, what does he mean by that? Well, that phrase is used by our biographers to speak about great men who seemingly have a glaring weakness. In the life of Thomas Jefferson, we see he's the writer of one of the greatest documents on freedom in all of human history, that we are endowed by our Creator with the ability for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that no man should be enslaved, no man should be held in bondage, but that all men are created equal in the sight of God. Yet, a man who wrote with such flowing eloquence and oratorical skills is a man who himself, while speaking on the subject of freedom, owns slaves. Wait a minute. Meacham says that glaring weakness, that glaring area in his life is a reminder that Jefferson lived as a man of his time. Now, as we look to the life of Samson this morning, I want you to remember he's a man of his time. Now does that mean that uh, he is one who can be absolved of all of his sins and all of his failures? Absolutely not. But as we open Judges 13 this morning, we come to a context, to a place in human history where the Bible speaks not very well of, of the days that Samson would be born into, In fact, the book of Judges is a time of great disaster and struggle for the people of Israel. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, the author tells us that there was no king in the area of or the nation of Israel and that each person did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what many times Samson found himself doing. So if it doesn't mean we can absolve Samson of his sins... What it should do is allow us to extend a little grace to this guy and be reminded that God has endowed us with some amazing gifts and abilities and we, just like Samson, find ourselves failing as well. You see, while we look to the life of Samson, we're going to see a rap sheet that's filled with all types of ugly sin and all types of fits of rage and all types of issues of lust and desire. And you may say, but that's not my problem, that's not my issue, that's not my struggle. And yet I want to remind you, while our rap sheets may be different... Each of us live like Samson where God has given us all the potential in the world to change the lives around us and to change the world for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. And just like Samson, we fail miserably at living up to that potential and being filled by that spirit that enables us to do great things. And so we can all look and we can all understand that we have a little bit of Samson in us this morning. But here's the good news. Amidst all of the frailties and all of the flaws and all of those massive mistakes that Samson makes throughout this series that we will look at in depth, here's the great truth of God's grace. Amidst all of that terrible stuff in Samson's life, Samson is listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, as one of the inductees of the great hall of faith. And what that helps me to be encouraged with is amidst all of my struggles, amidst all of my issues, amidst all of the times that I've turned from God and not lived up to the potential that God has called me to live up to, that God still can use me. And here's the truth, church. God can still use you. God can use you with all of your past struggles and all of your past issues and and the dysfunctions of the present. And God can use you to, to do mighty things, for his kingdom. But we must make a choice, as Samson had to. Are we going to honor God and follow him and his ways, or are we going to honor ourselves and pursue the things that will impact our lives and lives alone? So with that, as a very long introduction I want us to turn our attention to Judges 13 as a way of practice here at the church to show our respect for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of this chapter, and we're going to learn about the birth of this amazing man named Samson and the impact that uh, a visitor from heaven has on the life of Samson's parents. Judges chapter 13, "...and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord." So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and, and bear a son. Therefore... Be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that, of an appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come again to teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Then Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or anything else unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rocks to the Lord and to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as this. And the woman bore a son and called him Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadan between Zora and Eshterol. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for your blessing on our time and your word. Teach us, Lord, what to see in your text, how to apply it to our lives, and then, Lord, to make the difficult decisions of, of, of ridding the things that need to be gone so that your blessing and your spirit may fill us to the fullest. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. If you want to follow along in the sermon uh, insert that's in the bulletin, I want to look at three things this morning with the time that I have left. and I want us to look at the birth story of Samson, and I want us to see three key points out of this text this morning. Number one, we're going to see that God calls people to serve him no matter the circumstances. Second, we're going to see how God commands parents to shape their children, and three, we're going to see how God continues to show us his compassion over and over and over again. And so let's look at the first point this morning. God is calling us to serve him no matter the circumstances. Now chapter 13 of the book of Judges opens up not with many of your mom and dad's fairy tale stories. In a kingdom far, far away, there was this wonderful king and wonderful queen, and all of the subjects were happy, and and everybody lived happily ever after. No, my friends, the book of Judges is one of the saddest elements of all of Scripture. It's a time of great darkness, a time of great struggle. In fact, in uh, chapter 12, which is preceding, of course, chapter 13, we learn of the absolute stupidity of a judge named Jephthah, who preceded Samson. Jephthah would make an idiotic vow, something that no person should ever do, and as a result of it, he would sacrifice his own daughter to the fire in order to save face amongst the pagans. The days and the times of the book of Judges was a time where the nation was ripe for godly leadership. And instead received leadership from deeply flawed men and women. And yet the great grace of the book of Judges is God still used those men and women to fulfill his plans and purposes. Yet this is true today. We live as flawed people and amidst the chaos and all of the turmoil and trouble that fills our world, I want you to know this morning that God is on the lookout for faithful men and women, people who will rise to the occasion, people who amidst all of the uncertainty in their lives are willing to stick their neck out, if you will, and take God at his word and step out with big steps of faith. This is going to be true for Samson's parents who who, who come and are a part of this this time. In chapter 13, we're not going to hear much about Samson at all. We're going to hear about his mom and dad, and yet we learn that Samson would be born and his parents would live in a time, notice first of all, of great disobedience. Notice verse 1, it makes it very clear, sounding like a broken record. Israel finds itself once again in the pattern of sin. It says, and the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This pattern had started at the death of Moses and the rise of Joshua to the ranks of leader in all of Israel. Remember, Joshua was given the job of of clearing out the promised land and giving that promised land to the Israelite nation. And what Israel was supposed to do as the shining light in the promised land was to be an example to all the neighboring nations. That they were the ones who were loved by God and lived for God. And as a result of that, other nations would see the blessing of God in their lives. And as a result of that, they would start to live differently. But the opposite takes place. As soon as the Israelites find themselves in the promised land, they begin to covet the ways of the nations around them. They begin to covet their their women and covet their worship and, and covet the way that they live life. And instead of being the example to the disobedient nations around them, they became like everybody else. Can I tell you that same temptation is alive and well for us today here in America? We have been placed in our homes, we've been placed in our occupations, we have been placed in wonderful places of great honor and opportunity, and the question is, will we live like everybody else around us, or will we be that shining city on a hill that can be seen in a world of darkness? And some of us right now, we've hidden that light under a bushel. We find ourselves not being, as we learned a couple months ago, of being the salt and light in the world. We are like the nation of Israel in the time of Judges. Instead of being the one that everybody looked to to find the way to life and to joy and peace, we have looked to them for the things that we desire. And so this is the nation of Israel, living amidst a disobedient people, and they themselves enjoying the disobedience. This nation of Israel that Samson would be born into would be filled with people who knew better but made a willful and knowing choice to follow their appetites instead of following God. Notice that God is very clear that a man reaps what he sows and that God cannot be mocked. And so what does God do with issues of disobedience? Well, God addresses our disobedience and he did in the book of Judges as well. Verse 13, when they had done what was evil in the sight of God, God had an answer for them. Notice at the end of verse one, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines, the dreaded enemies of the nation of Israel, this wasn't the first time that the Philistines had, had encountered the Israelites and it wouldn't be the last time. We know of another great Philistine uh, soldier who would come named Goliath and would create all kinds of havoc to the nation of Israel and would give the opportunity for David to have a big step of faith with God and to slay him one day. But the Philistines of, of the day of judges, it was, a, it was a powerful nation, not the most powerful nation in all of the land. And they weren't known to be an invading army. You see, the Philistines, uh, they didn't have much military prowess. And so the way that they would take over nations was that they would do it through business and pleasure. Now, let me explain with you. Philistines, historians tell us, were the, the nation that first learned how to smelt iron. That means they were able to take iron and and fashion it and make it for weapons, make it for tools, for work, and for industry. And so they were known to be a people who you would turn to if you were a farmer and you needed a tool, if you were a soldier and needed an implement for war. You had to go through them to get whatever you needed. They were the Walmart of the day, if you will. They had all that you needed. And yet... They never told you that you had to follow them. They didn't rule with an iron fist. What they would do is they would welcome you in to their lifestyle. Come and do trade with us. Everything you need, we'll give you. Just come. And one of the things that they would extend to you is the hands of their sons and daughters into marriage, business, and pleasure. And what they began to do is they would say, okay, Israelites, come and be a part of our customs. Come and be a part of our our lives. We'll even give you our children so that you can marry them, knowing that if there were Israelites who were given into marriage, that the national spirit of Israel would be diluted little by little, and that the nation at some point in the future would no longer be the nation of Israel, but some mongrel race of Philistine Israelites together. And the Philistines said, instead of having to invade with armies, we will slowly and very consciously begin to strangle the heart of Israel and their ways, choking them, if you will, to death through compromise and assimilation. You see, Israel was not enslaved by military dominance like that of the Egyptians, but spiritual and cultural seduction. Can I tell you that's the name of the world's game today? They're not dominating us from a a military standpoint. They're not putting us into chains, demanding that we do things. No, they advertise with the most beautiful and most seductive of scenes on our televisions and our magazine and media. And they tell us, just enjoy yourselves. Intermingle with us. Just have a good time. And, and, And the more you hang with us, the less we'll hear about Jesus the less we'll hear about your morals, the less we'll hear about uh, the Scriptures and the way of life that the Scriptures unfold. And so the world today is doing exactly what the Philistines did, not taking us over through military might, but through seduction, focusing in on the issues of business and pleasure. And that's true for the Christian today as well. It was a time of great disobedience. Write down, it was a time of great defeat for 40 years The people of Israel found themselves under the rule of someone else. No national pride, no no, uh, uh, patriotism. You were a part of another individual or another nation's empire. And right when you think that this was a 40 years of great anguish and struggle, scholars remind us that there was not a singular voice crying for repentance or revival. Forty years 40 years in God's promised land and not a single individual rises up and says, God wants more for his people than bondage. God wants more from his people than compromise. Not a singular voice. And that begs the question for us this morning, will we be that singular voice in our schools or in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods or in our families who will cry out and say to the world, this isn't God's best for you. God wants so much more that He sent His Son to die for you that you might have eternal life and peace and joy and contentment and all that comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or, because of the compromise and the seduction, have we become distracted and become one in the neighborhood, one in the school, one in the family, though we may have a different appointment on Sunday mornings? that we have altogether become completely useless for God's use and pleasure. This defeat was something that they were okay with. But notice within this is a microcosm of a couple. Notice there's a time of great difficulty. While the disobedience of a nation and defeated situation of Israel is a storyline in and of itself, the writer of Judges reminds us that there was a certain man amidst all of that amidst all of the geopolitical and social-cultural issues that were going on in Israel's day, there was a man. And with God's heavenly GPS, he finds this Danite, this man of a small tribe in the nation of Israel, a man and his unknown wife. She's never given a name. This man's name is Manoah. And Manoah is a man that Jewish tradition tells us is a righteous man. He's a good man. He's a man that seemingly isn't all that important within the realm of what was going on. I want to remind us that amidst all of this that God knows who you are. And God is intimately acquainted with you. But, but I'm just Tim. I'm just a, a, a bald dude from Hinkley, Illinois. I don't have much acclaim, I don't have much to to talk about, and and, and what is God going to use with me? And you can say the same thing of yourself, and yet I want you to know that God knows you, God has gifted you, and God is now calling you amidst all of the circumstances that are going on around you. He is looking to you and saying, oh, the plans I have for you. The Bible makes it clear, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. And that's not some generic promise, that's a promise to each and every person who bows the knee to Jesus Christ. God has great things in store for us if we would just follow him and humble ourselves and submit to his calling in our life. Now notice, we see that this couple, the only thing we learn about this couple is that they live a life of difficulty. We are told that not only was it bad in the nation of Israel's time and history, but this couple, we receive even more bad news. Manoah and his wife, the text says, really only one thing about them, they're without children and they're barren. Now the phraseology there, of course, if you were to say the woman was barren or infertile, you would know she has no children. The writer is wanting to give a hopeless case to this. She's barren and they have no children, meaning it ain't ever going to happen. And they have given up hope that a child would ever be born to them. And so we get this picture of this man and woman, we don't know their ages, but obviously long enough to know that they were never going to have kids, living in some far off place, nowhere of any kind of prominence. And they're barren. They're infertile. And we know from uh, biblical times that barrenness would bring about questions of doubt and questions and rumors and innuendos of of being cursed by God. Because children are a blessing and gift from God, not having them in biblical times many times would mean that God had you accursed. And as a result of that, you were accursed because of some sin or some, some issue in your life. And Manoah and his wife, no doubt, as Old Testament People would have endured such things. And we know personally that the life of a man and woman trying to have kids is one of great patience, one of great sadness. Maybe this is the month. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the decade. Never wanting to give up hope that maybe God will gift us with a child. We know of nothing that we should be accursed about. And yet God does not answer the heart cry that we have. And some of you this morning find yourself in that predicament. Not because you're accursed by God. Maybe because God has his ways being higher than our ways. Maybe there's a child that will come. Maybe not. But amidst all of that, we know that God has plans for people with kids and people that God does not give kids to. So take heart. God loves you, and he has a plan for you. And he had a plan for Manoah and his wife. Amidst this nation, God was about to send a deliverer, one who would be gifted by God to show the nation that God was still with them. That God had not left them or forsaken them. That God could be trusted in all his ways. And yet for that to happen, Manoah and his wife were going to have to be people who would trust and obey. You see, for many of us, we want God to rescue us. We want God to answer our prayer. And yet little do we know that many times the answer to our prayer is found in our obedience. Obedience. You see, we say, God, give me this. God, I I want you to answer that. And we never seem to think that God may be requiring of us something so that that prayer can be answered and that answer can come. Far too many of us just throw prayers to God, not thinking that he's requiring anything of us. And we're going to see that God's about to answer their prayer, but it's going to come with some requirements. In order for this baby to fully realize his role in God's plan... He was going to need parents who would teach and train, who would serve and honor God faithfully. And so notice that brings us to the second point. Now that we understand the context of this baby's birth, we now focus in on the parents and we see God, and he gives a command to not only Samson's parents, but to us as parents that we have a job to shape our children. Write that down this morning. That God commands us as parents to shape our children. God's about to use Manoah and his wife in a role that is so crucial and so needed to train up this God-given child so that that child will fulfill God's plans and purposes for his life. We know that parenting is the greatest task that's given to any husband and wife. One that can absolutely at times bring you to the brink of craziness. I mean, kids are hard to raise, one that we have to be a part of for the sake of society, for the sake of the kids, and even for the sake of our posterity, parents must dedicate themselves to serving their God well in the raising of their children. But how are they to do it? Let's move through this text quickly and see what Manoah and his wife did. First of all, we see that parents, just like Manoah and his wife, need to be people who are active in following God's word. In verses 3 through 7. We are told of a visitor who visits Manoah's wife and shares the good news of an upcoming and impending pregnancy. What an absolute time of joyous celebration. This woman who has been without the opportunity of having kids now, probably later in her life, is now given the opportunity to to know the joys of, of having one of her own children. The curse is gone and God's blessing is on her. But this blessing would come with strings attached with this baby would come some responsibility. Now they would do all the things that we're called to do as parents. The, the diapers and the late night feedings and, and the teaching of, of reading and writing and, and, and learning how to be a functioning child within society. But, but this baby was going to be different. They were told that this baby would be a baby who would be totally separated for God's use. Not for a short season of time, not for 40 days, if you will, but for all of his life. From the point of conception to uh, his adult life, even to death, this child that was going to be born to Manoah and his wife would be a Nazarite. We'll talk about that later in the series, but, but a Nazarite was one who took a vow, whether for a short season of time or for long seasons of time, of total submission of God. It's spoken about in Numbers 6. The book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And you will see in those verses that it will include things like no haircuts and no wine or fruit from the vine, meaning you can't eat grapes, you can't eat even raisins dried up, a fruit from a vine. You were stay away from it. You were not to touch anything that was unclean or, or dead. And over and over again, you say, well, why all these odd requests from God about this vow of being a Nazarite? The answer was, is over and over again in the book of, of Numbers, the word separated to God is shared over and over again. The reason for this vow was to take someone and to separate them from the ways of this world to do the bidding of God in his life. Now, notice in verse four, the visitor makes it clear that she was even to be careful as the babies in utero not to eat or drink anything fermented or unclean. All of this was to remind the parents of Samson that the child was to be separated unto the Lord. What that meant was Samson was going to be different. He was going to be unique. He was going to be one who would not think about taking over dad's business or not thinking about uh, doing anything else but focusing in on his personal and purposeful commitment to the Lord himself. Now, nowhere in the story do we see that his parents fight this issue. They obey. Now, obedience isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Samson's parents, and it wouldn't be easy for you or I. But I love the example that they give. You see, they, they tell him, they tell Manoah and his wife, you're going to have this child, and he's going to be special, and, and he's going to be dedicated to the Lord. And, and I wonder if there was a part of the parents saying, why do our kid have to be the different kind of kid? Why does our kid have to have responsibility? Can't we just have, just like all of our neighbors, just a kid and just love on them and and enjoy life and feed them all the things and and cut their hair? I mean, this kid's going to look like a hippie. Who wants a hippie kid? If you raise your hand, I don't want you to raise your hand. Don't do that. Okay? This kid's going to be viewed differently because when they're handing out grapes at school, he's going to have to say, no, I can't. I'm set apart for God, and that's not going to put him at the popular kid's table. And the parents are going to sit there and say, why do we have to have the special kid? Why do we have to do that? Nowhere in the text does it say that they're willing to do that. Now understand, this isn't for all of life. This isn't for a short period of time. And Manoah and his wife obey. And notice, they don't get it all. The plans of God are are kind of confusing to them. And so notice what Manoah says in chapter 13. He says, hey, I I want you to, to teach us. Teach us what we're supposed to do. Those are the magic words. As Christians, whether we're parents or not, the magic words that God wants us to hear is, Lord, I'm willing, but I don't get your plans. I don't understand your ways. I want to be humble. I want to be willing to serve you in every way, but I just don't know which way to go. Is it left or to right? And what James tells us is that the magic words are, Lord, show me. In the book of James, we are told if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. God will never be angry with you if you say, Lord, show me the way. Lord, help me to see. And Manoah and his wife did exactly that. Instead of growing frustrated, instead of seeing the the hardship of obeying God with their child, they trusted God and did what he said. Notice number two, parents are to fear God above all things. Verse 21 through 23, we're told that the angel comes and shares the good news of all that's going to happen, and Samson's dad freaks out. I mean, this dude's here one moment. He turns away a good meal of lamb uh, from a goat. I guess it would be a goat, not a lamb. I should know better. Okay, uh, a goat meal, and, uh, and the, the guy says, I don't want any of that. Don't detain me. But if you'll offer that uh, as a sacrifice, that will be good enough for me. And when the flame comes and consumes the animal, uh, the, the man who had come and visited them leaves him just as quickly with all kinds of brilliance and splendor. And it's there that Manoah in verses 21 through 23 sees this guy that's visited us. Man, he is something totally different. He recognizes the power and splendor of the heavenly visitor. And what does he want to do? He is fearful. Of what he has just been a part of, and the task he's been given, he's afraid he's going to die. "I want to get this thing right," he says. "I want to make sure of it," and in a couple different times in our passage. he says, "Just tell me, what's the manner of this boy's ministry? How are we to, to parent this kid? Can I tell you, in our world today, there are far, there's far too little fear of God in parents' eyes. Well what are we afraid of? We're afraid of the kid. What if we do this? They won't like us. Far too many of us are worried and and enamored. And please hear me and please nuance this in a correct way. Far too many of us are more enamored with our children's educations and their choices of college or or, or what they're doing on the sports field and what team they're on or what position they're playing or they're worried about uh, what their kids are, are going to do, if you will, from A community life, meaning are they popular or not? And those are the things that we're worried about for our kids. And here Manoah and his wife are concerned about the most important thing. How do we raise this child so they will fulfill God's plans and purposes as an adult? And as parents, I have three kids. I understand it. All of those things are important. Their education and and sports to a far lesser degree and and their life with friends and all that. But let me tell you, as a Christian, if you fail to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and they are the valedictorian and a Heisman Trophy winner and the most popular kid in all of the nation, you have failed as a parent. Because number one, none of that will matter if they find themselves consigned to a place called hell. Who cares how they live that life? Who cares of the acclamation that's given unto them if we don't teach them the ways of the Lord, we as parents have failed. And Manoah and his wife get it right. They're worried about what God will say of them, not what their kid will say. Do you think that Samson at times would say, but mom, dad, I want grapes. You can't have them. Well, you're the worst parents in the world. Well, that's okay because we're good in God's eyes and that's all that matters. I know some of you are going to use that today. <laughs> God comes first, not your kids. And some of you have, have, have found yourself, and I get it, they're, they're great things to have, children, wonderful human beings. But remember, they don't come between you and your spouse. And they most definitely don't come between you and God. So teach them God's ways. Do it together, fearing God, not your child. What are you to teach them? Write this down, we're running out of time. You need to teach them how to live amidst triumphs. Show them what it means when they win to do it unto the Lord. How about when there's trouble? Your kids are not always going to get first place. Your kids are going to have trials and tribulations unbelievable come in their lives and a good godly parent teaches their children how to be ready for those trials and troubles and tribulations that are going to come that they will stand on the rock of jesus christ in those days that they will cry out to god to their trouble for him to come in their hour of need teach them about temptation the book of Proverbs, which we're going to study in the last part of our summer, is a father over and over again telling his son, Be careful, be careful, be careful. There's a lot of bad stuff out there, and you need to be ready, and you need to know how to deal with that. So, how do we do it? Notice Manoah and his wife fervently desire to honor God. In verses 15 through 20, they do two things they try to make a meal for the guy who's visited them, and then they worship and honor him. How do parents make sure that they are raising their children well? They begin not by parenting, by being strong followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And so you say, well, I don't know if I'm doing a good job parenting. Well, let's, let's back up a minute. How are you doing with your walk with Christ? I've told you this, church. My parents were no superstar parents. They had issues and struggles like everybody else did. But what I saw was a man and woman who loved Jesus. And that love that my dad had for Jesus, it it made its way to mom. And and, and I saw how he loved his wife. And and I saw how he loved us. and, And yet I knew that I was third place after mom and after Jesus. I saw that in my mom and and, and I, I have no other choice but to do that now because I saw the faithfulness of a mom and dad who did that. And so maybe your parents weren't that way, but, but today is the day and opportunity for you to show your children what it means to be a fervent follower of Jesus Christ. Honor him, give him the best, show him how important show your kids how important it is to be a follower of God's, to do what he says, even when it's difficult, you will not be disappointed. Now, let me just put a point of clarity to that before I get to a very short third point, and that is this. Manoah and his wife did all those things well. Listen, and Samson still blew it. And I want you to know, and there are some parents here that are a little older than myself, and you say, I think we did everything right, and we've honored God, and we've served God, and Junior, or or our daughter, man, they're, they're, they're living like, you know what. Remember that the book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way they will go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it. Notice the context or the the, the reference is Proverbs, not promises. It's not a promise that if you do everything right as a parent, your kids will turn out wonderful, but you've got to, and this is why it is so important that we as parents get on our knees and we pray and pray and pray that God would do what parents can and that is change the heart of a child. And understand this, that it's never too late for a young man or a young woman to come back to Jesus. And so maybe you say, well, they're out of our house, or, or they're, they're, they're living, they'll never come back. Well, maybe a parent can't get them back, but Jesus can. And so pray, and pray that God would do that. Notice the final thing I want you to see, and is we're going to see this throughout the, the series, that God continues to show us his compassion. Here amidst all of this darkness in the life of Israel, all of this um, difficulty in the life of Manoah and his wife, there is a reminder in Samson's birth that God is not done with his people. And that God is completely and utterly faithful to his promises. How does he do it? Notice three things. There's two in your, your text. I'm going to add one more. Number one, God's compassion is seen in another opportunity for us to change. He gives us another opportunity for us to change. Here Israel's living like uh, they want to live, not thinking about God, and God says, I'm gonna bring another deliverer. And today is a reminder of that truth that just in the day of, of Judges, God gives you another opportunity. Maybe yesterday your life was filled with sin Well, you're still living today, and God has given you another opportunity to repent. God says, I'm not gonna send my son Jesus Because my patience and long-suffering gives another moment for you to repent before it's too late. And God giving Israel, the man Samson, is a reminder that God is not done with his people yet. And can I tell you something? God ain't done with each of us yet either. And so we just need to turn to him and we need to see his grace and his compassion and say, thank you, Lord, for another opportunity for my heart to be softened so that I can turn to you. Notice number two, God's compassion is seen as the obedience to fulfill God's calling. This is quite simple. What God was calling Manoah and his wife to and what God was going to subsequently call Samson to was stuff that they would be able to do. They were able to do it. God didn't say, okay, Manoah and your wife, I want you to jump 25 feet into the air. Well, they couldn't do that. God didn't request that or require that of them. He said, I'm going to bring a child into your life. You're going to raise this child, and I'm going to give you everything you need to be able to get it done. Notice this. God never gives us something that we cannot do through his strength. The Bible says we have everything we need for life and godliness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you have something in your life that God's calling to you and say, well, I just don't have that gifting. I don't have that ability. I don't have that resource. God says, let me deal with that. You just be faithful and I'll give you everything you need to accomplish that. How does he do that? Write this down. He sends the only one who can do all things. Remember that visitor that we have? That visitor that comes whose name is wonderful? That's Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord, when we see in the Old Testament the term angel of the Lord, it's what we call a theophany. And what that means is the appearance of God. And what we have here is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, before his incarnation, coming and visiting with Samson. Notice the amazing thing that happens. The great deliverer Jesus speaks about a forerunner deliverer in Samson. And so what does Jesus say? Manoah, your wife, I'm going to take care of all these things. I'm going to give you what you need. And notice, just as Jesus did with his disciples, notice at the end of chapter 13, what does this boy receive? In verse 25, it says that the man grew, in verse 24, and the Lord blessed him. How? The spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. Samson. So here, just as Jesus did in the New Testament, here in the Old Testament, Jesus comes and he says, you know what I'm going to do for your son? I'm going to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit that filled the life of Samson is alive and well in you and I today. And the question we have to wrestle with is will we allow ourselves to be filled with that Spirit Or will we be like Samson who grieved the Spirit at different times in his life and brought on all kinds of heartache, pain, and struggle? We're going to learn more about this guy and the faults and the failings, but also how God can use people like Samson and like you and I to change the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your word and Thank you for uh, your people and their diligence to hear these words and to apply them to uh, their lives. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would look to the example of Samson's parents. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but used in a powerful way to be used by you and to minister to their son. Lord, I pray that as parents we would do the same thing. But Lord, also that we as a people would not just consign ourselves to serving you through our parenting, but in all facets of life, in all facets of society, wherever you place us, Lord, that we would recognize that you've called us to those places to be the salt and light in the world. And that means we have to say no to sin and no to unrighteousness and no to worldly lust. We have to do sometimes what Samson was unwilling to do, and that is turn off our desires so that we can follow you and be separated and set apart for you and your work. So, Lord, as we go through this series, I pray that you would teach your people and you would raise up modern-day men and women Who will stand for you in the strength of Samson, not the defeats, so they can honor you in all that they do. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place as we fellowship with one another and as we speak of your great renown in words of fellowship with each other. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. Go and fellowship together. You are dismissed.